recalibrations. In this chapter, Perry Anderson begins by speaking of the fundamental continuities between Republican and Democratic administrations and the conduct of foreign policy, uh, both cleaving to the containment doctrine as articulated in NSC 68. but he takes the story up to the 70s, and the 70s is a turning point in the narrative um, because it sees uh, some fundamental and unexpected transformations in the uh, world balance of power between the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, and he's going to lay out a, a world map of different regions here and to show how you know outcomes in one region um, where the United States prevail were seemingly countered by um, outcomes in other regions where the Soviet Union and its allies prevailed. So what's interesting about this chapter is that you get a sense that really in the period right before the decline and fall of the Soviet Union in the 1980s, it seemed as if the Soviet Union was not only um, achieving uh, kind of parity as a superpower with the United States, uh, but was also scoring, amidst failures in some regions, notable foreign policy successes in others. And if you grew up in this period, you might recall the revolutionary um, politics of the period, uh, you know, particularly in the Third World, seemed very much um, alive to many people on the left. And um, it's an interesting story to show how the period, as it looked in the 1970s, eventually uh, devolved into the uh, world of the 1980s and the beginnings of the defeat, not just of the Soviet Union, but socialism and national liberation movements all around the world. So that's really what this chapter is about. Okay, so Nixon. As I was saying, Anderson gives quite a lot of significance to uh, Nixon's innovative role in redirecting American foreign policy. Now, we generally think of that as mostly about the opening to China, um, which, of course, does play a very large role in this account uh, here as well. Not only does that shift the global balance of power in a very decisive way against the Soviet Union. So even amidst all these breakthroughs and revolutions in various parts of the world, the more fundamental change that took place in the geopolitical scene was this beginning of a realignment of China towards the United States, which really culminates in the late 70s under Deng Xiaoping and Carter, and really sets the stage for the subsequent integration of China into the world market and China's status for a very long period of time, up until recently, as a kind of junior partner in the kind of global economy which evolved out of the crisis, the economic crisis of the 1970s. Okay, so Nixon, in a way, was Machiavellian enough to sort of be willing to make a deal with Uh, the Chinese regime, even though previously there had been an awareness of the depth of the Sino-Soviet conflict, um, there hadn't really been much of an idea that this could be exploited by the United States, and it really took somebody who was able 
to think outside of the box, according to Anderson, to be able to spot the possibilities there and, and, and to run with them. But it's not just in China, as I was saying, it's really in, in three fronts, not, not just China, but in Europe and in the, um, or rather, in relationship to the rest of the advanced capitalist world and the third world, the former uh, colonial world. So you have three zones, China, Europe, or rather the advanced capitalist world as a whole, and um, the, the third world uh, that we're just going to look at in sequence here and see what Anderson says about what's going on in each of these zones and how the, the big story, um, the big change that sets up what happens in the 1980s, i.e. the decline and fall of the Soviet Union is basically being uh, cast here in this earlier period. Okay, so first in relationship to Europe and the advanced capitalist world, of course, we shouldn't say Europe first and foremost, because Japan is clearly um, increasingly the the major uh, economy after the United States and the capitalist world, and its penetration into the American market is a very decisive part of the story that unfolds here. So... Here's how Anderson describes uh, this change in the U.S.'s relationship to its main allies, basically, the other advanced capitalist countries um, under its under its protection um, that it basically rebuilt from destruction of the Second World War. So after two decades, the former Axis powers were now, thanks to U.S. aid, access to U.S. markets and borrowing of U.S. technology, combined with reserves, uh, armies of low-wage labor, and more advanced forms of industrial organization than the U.S. possessed, out-competing American firms in one branch of manufacturing after another, steel, auto, machine tools, electronics. Under this German and Japanese pressure, the rate of profit of U.S. producers fell sharply, and a U.S. trade deficit opened up. So more or less, Anderson subscribes to the account of the fundamental economic change uh, that you see in the 1970s as the onset of a long downturn uh, brought about by a kind of increasingly worldwide crisis of overproduction, which brings down profit rates across the board on a system-wide basis. And he's able to sort of show how um, the long downturn is not just something that happens in the capitalist world, but is really something which affects the the other side as well, the Soviet bloc, and in fact, uh, paradoxically perhaps, it's the case that the way in which this crisis unfolds will not result in any fundamental political challenges to capital, which is what you might have expected, but rather in the collapse of the alternatives to the capitalist system to the extent that the Soviet Union and the East bloc in some form or another embodied that. So that's one of the ways in which he's going to kind of introduce an analysis of the evolution of the capitalist system into the story that he's going to be telling, although in a way that's sort of in the backdrop here. Okay, so Japan and Germany are encroaching on U.S. markets. Nixon's response was draconian, Anderson says. The principles of free trade, the free market, and the solidarity of the free world could not stand in the way of the national interest. And so he jettisoned the Bretton Woods system. He cut the link of the dollar to gold. He imposed a tariff on all imports and decreed a wage and price freeze. 
As Anderson goes on to say, in the short run, devaluation restored the competitive punch of U.S. exporters, and in the long run, delinkage of the dollar from gold gave the U.S. state greater freedom of economic maneuver than ever before. So the crisis is really an opportunity for a restructuring, and it's not just a domestic story, you know, the defeat of labor and the rolling back of the welfare state, but this massive offensive on the foreign policy front, which ultimately culminates in a spectacular success by the end of the 1980s. Now, despite the fact that in the 1970s we see a calamitous defeat for U.S. imperialism in Vietnam, of course, uh, in the aftermath of that as testimony to the degree to which China is now aligning itself with the United States, China goes on the attack of uh, after v- Vietnam um, invades Cambodia to depose the Khmer Rouge regime, and the U.S. and China, beginning under Carter, back the remnant Khmer Rouge forces in opposition to this uh, Vietnamese occupation for a very long period thereafter. So even there, um, you know, the United States, even in you know, China, uh, was tenacious in its unwillingness to accept the extent of its defeat. Okay, but failure in Indochina. In Latin America, on the other hand, we have a different story. The Allende regime, um, the most radical government of Latin America in this earlier part of the 1970s, is deposed by the Chilean military with the support of the United States. Um, And it's not just a story of the defeat of the South American left after the uh, establishment of military dictatorships there. Basically, the Latin American left in South America, um, we'll see this story is very different in Central America, is more or less uh, contained, uh, more or less uh, marginalized and, and crushed. Okay, so it's not just South America. We look also uh, to the Middle East, where we can see the United States' um, main ally in the region, Israel, accomplishing a a very punishing defeat to the Egyptian military in 1973. And, you know, this more or less begins the kind of long decline of Arab nationalism as a potentially Soviet-aligned threat to U.S. interests in the region, particularly to its support of the Gulf regime. So... Um, South America, victory for the U.S. Uh, Middle East, uh, another victory for the U.S. Africa, the story is interesting and complicated because there you see the collapse of the Portuguese empire and the uh, coming to power also in Portugal of a radical left-wing government, uh, ostensibly anti-imperialist in both Angola and in Mozambique. Of course, there's a ferocious counteroffensive launched by South Africa with the tacit support of the United States, but that's um, in part neutralized by uh, Cuban intervention. There's also the Ethiopian Revolution that he talks about, which in a way is uh, an interesting case that we've often forgotten about in the subsequent decades, mostly because of our association with the calamities of the famine in, 19, in the 1980s. We don't really register the degree to which the Ethiopian Revolution had begun a process of quite radical transformation. In any event, the U.S. there, too, is able to kind of uh, contain the threat. I had mentioned that, you know, when we were speaking about uh, Latin America, we had to distinguish between what happened in 
South America to what happened in Central America. And Anderson goes on to talk about the uh, victories of the left in Nicaragua and the uh, possibilities of that victory extending to uh, other countries in uh, Central America, uh, primarily, first and foremost, uh, El Salvador, and then the ferocious counter-revolutionary responses, which basically check those uh, threats at the cost of hundreds, tens of thousands, anyhow, uh, of lives uh, in these very small countries. As he puts it, local oligarch and officers reacted to the wave of regional radicalization with death squads, disappearances, torture, massacres. In these two countries, the Carter administration supplied American training and assistance. Reagan, no less determined to hold the line in El Salvador and Guatemala, decided to tackle the problem uh, in Nicaragua itself. There's also, of course, um, you know, under, under Bush, um, Bush Sr., that is, the invasion of Panama. Okay, um, the third world or former colonial world ends that discussion uh, in this chapter ends with a focus on Afghanistan and Iran and of course neither of these countries were actually ever formally colonized so in a way they stand out and of course you can say that former colonial world isn't quite right as a description of uh, Latin America either in some sense it was colonial under Spanish rule um, up until the early 19th century, but not colonial in, in, in the sense that we associate with uh, the other uh, parts of Asia and Africa that were at the forefront of anti-colonial struggles. Okay, so Afghanistan, uh, there's the Soviet invasion there to basically support a left-wing communist party that is about to be swept away by a counter-revolutionary traditionalist reaction and the United States very effectively, with Pakistan as a sort of frontline client, drain away, you know, Soviet resources in an ultimately futile campaign to prevent the um, uh, Islamic uh, fundamentalist forces of opposition to the Soviet-backed regime from prevailing. This, of course, as we know, is one of the main precipitants of the uh, story of the decline and fall of the Soviet Union in the 1980s. It's just not just a huge drain of resources, but a tremendous blow to Soviet military morale. Of course, there's the Iranian Revolution in 1979 as well. So you have to think, 1979, although you know the story is being told of a fundamental realignment, generally in the favor of the United States, we have Portuguese revolution and anti-colonial revolts in the Portuguese colonies. We have Nicaragua, Sandinistas coming to power. We have the uh, establishment of communist regime in Afghanistan. And then you have the Iranian revolution. Now, the Iranian revolution is interesting because the Islamic Republic that emerges uh, from it is, in a way, a true uh, third force in the uh, Cold War uh, context. It's aligned with neither the United States nor the Soviet Union. It is fundamentally hostile to both, and uh, that hostility is uh, reciprocated. And that reciprocation of hostility uh, manifests itself in U.S. and Soviet support, uh, Western and Soviet support for the Iraqi invasion attack on Iran under Saddam Hussein and the uh, subsequent Iran-Iraq war that raged for seven years thereafter, the attempt to neutralize 
the threat of uh, the Iranian Revolution's potential spread to, uh, to to the wider region and particularly to the to the Gulf. Okay, so let's get back to the main conflict uh, with the Soviet Union and East Bloc. Um, as uh, Anderson points out, you know, if you looked at this geopolitical picture over the course of the 1970s. You know, you might think that in certain respects the Soviet Union was holding its own, and certainly the Soviet leadership uh, initially thought that it was, and in fact saw detente um, Nixon's willingness to strike an arms control treaty with uh, the Soviet Union as a uh, manifestation of the fact that it had arrived and was being recognized by the United States as a legitimate, um, not an ally, not even close to that, um, but at least as a legitimate uh, state in the system, and, um, you know, that would bring about the end of any idea that Soviet power and influence could be um, rolled back, and the Soviet Union itself, you know, was to be um, eliminated or neutralized fundamentally. That, according to Soviet leadership, was now off the table, so that, uh, they thought, was a... um, was a breakthrough that they had achieved, um, despite the sort of ups and downs of this world picture that we're seeing emerge. Some places, um, the U.S. prevailing, and in other places, the Soviet Union or its allies uh, prevailing. Okay, so this detente, however, Anderson points out, was really a prelude to the decline and fall of the Soviet Union in the 1980s, and um, He's going to lay out really the kind of um, beginnings of the counteroffensive uh, under, really under Carter. I mean, in a certain sense, Carter put forward a much more aggressive critique, uh, an attack on uh, the Soviet Union in the name of human rights, in a certain way repudiating the kind of dirty Machiavellianism of the Nixon-Kissinger period. And it was this new human rights focus that would increasingly come to uh, play a very central role in subsequent American foreign policy uh, legitimation, despite the fact that Carter was at the time, as I was saying before, not just um, uh, pursuing the same basic American imperialist foreign policy uh, with respect to Central America, with respect to uh, Afghanistan, and even respect to uh, uh, the support of the Khmer Rouge uh, with China uh, against Vietnamese um, occupation forces in Cambodia. So, in their long contest, this is Anderson, with the United States, the rulers of the Soviet Union believed by the mid-70s that they had achieved strategic nuclear parity and therewith recognition by Washington of political parity as superpower of equal standing at large. Detente, in their eyes, signaled its acceptance of these realities. That's what I was saying. Um, He adds, though, these were illusions. What Brezhnev and his colleagues believed was a strategic turning point was for Nixon and Kissinger tactical construction. No American administration had any intention of permitting Moscow to act in the third world as Washington might do, and all had the means to see that it would come to grief if it tried to do so. His his, uh, final judgment, of course, it's a judgment in retrospect um, uh, about the 
breakthroughs to the left in the 1970s is disquieting. The apparent Soviet gains of the 70s were built on sands, brittle regimes that lacked either disciplined communist cadres or nationwide mass movements behind them, and would fall or invert in short order once support from Moscow was gone. Now, that's not really across the board, um, you can say, true. After all, we have persistence of the uh, Cuban regime, which is not something that he really mentions in this uh, chapter, and so that's an interesting exception in a way to the larger pattern that he's going to kind of be portraying of a kind of more or less complete U.S. Um, victory uh, uh, by the end of the 80s. Okay, so as I was saying before, the story of the long downturn, essentially subscribing to the account that Robert Brenner is uh, advanced of its underlying causes in overproduction and uh, system-wide decline in profit rates, really stemming from Japan and Germany's success in penetrating into the American market. As I said earlier, paradoxically, this wider world economic downturn hit uh, the Soviet Union East Bloc much harder. And in a way, it wasn't just the conjunctural um, problem of collapsing oil prices, although uh, Anderson points out that this played a significant role. It was really that the capacity of the Soviet economy to restructure and um, begin to develop a kind of more efficient um, economic uh, system, I mean, the inability of the Soviet Union to shift onto a track of more efficient economic evolution really became quite apparent um, in the 1970s and uh, manifests itself in a, in a uh, fundamental and irreversible downturn in the 1980s. And Gorbachev's rule was basically a desperate attempt to forestall, in a way, the, the, this, uh, this, this collapse of the Soviet economy by attempting to um, privatize and, uh, and, and to make extraordinary concessions to the United States and to the West and in Europe and the geopolitical front, and to democratize um, in a way that ultimately set up the conditions for the breakup of the Soviet Union and end of the Cold War in that form. So what was the cause of this economic discrepancy between the West and the Soviet Union. Okay, this is what Anderson has to say. If the origins of the long downturn in the OECD lay in the dynamics of uneven development and overcompetition, its consequences could be checked and deferred by systemic expansion of credit to ward off any traumatic devalorization of capital. In the USSR, a long economic downturn began earlier. Growth rates were already falling in the 60s, if much more sharply from the second half of the 70s and its dynamics lay in a plan-driven lack of competition and overextension of the lifespan of capital. And here, uh, Anderson invokes Trotsky's account of the uh, critical failings of the Soviet Union to, uh, even in the period in which it seemed to be most rapidly expanding in the 1930s, to really um, establish the kind of economic order which would be able to um, achieve a 
advances in the advances in productivity that it would that it would need in order to survive as a state. Even in the situation where there weren't going to be revolutions forthcoming immediately for the Soviet Union to survive, it needed to be structured on a uh, economic basis that would uh, permit it to come closer to uh, Western capitalist levels of labor productivity, which it really never did. And so that is the underlying uh, account given of why it is that the Soviet Union um, seemingly um, established as a superpower in the 1970s, seemingly uh, experiencing a number of foreign policy victories up until the um, late 70s, was so quickly and um, decisively turned back and, uh, and defeated not too long after. And so he talks about um, how the Soviet leadership under Gorbachev was basically willing to throw in the towel when Reagan um, uh, launched the you know, uh, military buildup, particularly um, the threat of uh, SDI, Strategic Defense Initiative, which seemed to portend a situation in which the parity that the Soviet Union had achieved on the nuclear arms front might be uh, neutralized by superior American technology. Um, that basically, even though SDI, as we know, never really got off the ground, so thoroughly demoralized a Soviet elite, which was already experiencing um, this intractable economic crisis, that it began to kind of abandon um, any uh, hope in the continuation of the system. And that's really what um, the whole Gorbachev uh, period in power really brought to light, just the inner corruption and demoralization of the uh, Soviet leadership um, sort of concealed under the surface, really, for a couple decades and even in the, a period in, in which it seemed to be, um, ha, in, in which it seemed to have really reached the peak of its power. So um, this is how uh, Anderson concludes this chapter. He says, making, talk, speaking of uh, Gorbachev, um, making no attempt to negotiate Soviet exit from the region, he placed his trust in Western gratitude for a unilateral withdrawal of 500,000 Red Army troops stationed in it. In exchange, Bush Sr. offered a verbal promise that NATO would not be extended to the borders of Russia and declined to supply any economic aid until the country was a free market economy. Continues, as call for Europe to be free and whole was met, for the USSR itself to become free, it would have to be divided. So really, we see here at the end um, the culmination of the strategic doctrine of containment, which really was ultimately a uh, containment that was meant to be the prelude to an eventual victory over the Soviet state and uh, the dismantling of its system as a threat and challenge to uh, the rule of capital. As we said earlier in discussion of another chapter, uh, that fundamental contradiction between capitalism and uh, the kind of planned economy that the Soviet Union was, is really the sort of organizing idea, so to speak, of Anderson's discussion of the Cold War, even though the Cold War is situated within this longer arc of American 
foreign policy and America's rise to world power. Chapter 7 is called Liberalism Militant. Although the Cold War uh, represented a civilizational conflict to American state planners, strategic planners, its end in 1992 left the U.S. with some unresolved business. So the end of history had been proclaimed by people like Fukuyama, and it came with the death of communism. And yet, the full victory of global capitalist democracy with America at its head still faced um, headwinds for full achievement. So liberalism militant details the presidencies of Bush the Elder, Clinton, and then George W. And it's through signature wars of theirs that Anderson is conducting his analysis here. So with the first Bush the Elder He's going to be talking about operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm. With Clinton, it's the NATO intervention into Bosnia and then later at Kosovo. And then finally, George W.'s wars in Afghanistan and Iraq after the attacks of 9-11, which um, kind of takes us into the period that Mario and I were involved in and kind of led us ultimately to this project and our interest in international relations theory. So this is uh, you know the start of really meaningful material to us as, um, you know, as this project has developed. Okay, so as with previous chapters we've discussed, Anderson again is trying to, um, is tying together the threads of capitalist economic development and military strategy here. That's economics and the state. Here it connects the military engagements of the 90s and the early 2000s, with uh, the U.S. placing the final touches on its hegemony over a securely capitalist global system. So we're going to be seeing um, a connection being made between the expansion of NATO on the military side and a host of free trade agreements like NAFTA, the GATT, or GATT. And additionally, I read this chapter as Anderson's account of how um, the U.S. handled its former allies in the Cold War, particularly those in... Um, the third world, whose political and economic systems didn't represent the democratic capitalist ideal for which that civilizational conflict during the Cold War was fought. So he's looking at how the U.S. controlled their former hound dogs, like Saddam Hussein or Noriega, now that they ran aimless, you know, without this uh, communist threat at their door suddenly um, and surprisingly vanquished. So let's let's start with, first with the demise of Noriega in 1989. Noriega was a strongman in Panama whose services were used essentially as a bulwark against the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. So his services come to a close after Nicaragua is returned to quote-unquote good hands, and this capped off the notorious history of land theft in Panama, beginning, as we've talked about um, in the first chapter, with Teddy Roosevelt's carving out 
the country of Panama out of a piece of Colombia in 1903 and ending with the 13th invasion in a century to bring Noriega's regime to an end. And it came to an end basically on legalistic terms, racketeering and drug trafficking charges. So this was called, um, ironically, Operation Just Cause, which is perhaps the biggest drug bust in history. Um, and I say that sarcastically. It involved nearly 30,000 American troops, and they tore up Panama City. I mean, it was a major police action, basically. And I went through and I looked at some of the radical newspapers at the time here in the States that covered this, and my favorite by far came from Workers' Vanguard at the time, December 1989, and it was U.S. Steals Panama Again, and I think that really captures the spirit of what's happening here. So that brings us to about the same time in 1990, And perhaps more importantly to the story here is the story of the erstwhile Middle East allies and strongmen in the struggle against communists and the Iranian revolution. And I'm talking mainly about the Ba'athist leadership, Um, you know, Saddam Hussein and its head. They quickly slipped the leash in Kuwait near the close of the Cold War. Um, Nationalism, you know, the Iraqi variety could play a useful role for American grand strategy during the Cold War. Um, but with the communist threat resolved, of course, state planners detected centripetal forces away from their full control, and uh, the invasion of Kuwait really represents that threat. So Kuwait's oil fields, I think, represented something like 20% of the world's oil supply, and I pulled that from Robert Pave's Bombing to Win. And, and of course, these riches were just far too dangerous in the hands of somebody like Saddam Hussein and um, you know, Kuwait's neighbors to the south, a principal ally of the United States, Saudi Arabia. So I think both of these situations capture what the United States is doing after the Cold War in controlling nationalism, some of the nationalist forces that they had used to, or not just nationalist forces, but strong men and military, uh, you know, hatchet men, in the Cold War and how they're disposing of them after the Cold War is over and then using this as the, you know, the, the pivot towards a new world order of uh, securely capitalist global hegemony. And one thing Anderson mentions at the close of the introduction of this chapter is he says it's a testament to the winds of change that the Security Council resolved to condemn the Panama invasion. This is the earlier of the two in, in 1989. Uh, of course, that condemnation in the Security Council's General Assembly was overruled by the U.S., France, and U.K. They just vetoed it. But then you get to the Gulf War, and in response to the to the invasion of Kuwait, I mean, that the resolution to invade was, it just flew through the General, uh, General Assembly with hardly a peep of resistance. And there's one really good quote from um, none other than George Bush the Elder here, which I'll just read in full to capture what this new world new world order looked like to the American bourgeoisie. A world once divided into two armed camps now recognizes one sole and preeminent superpower, the United States of America, and they regard this with no dread. For the world trusts us with power, and the world is right. They trust us to be fair and restrained. They trust us to be on the side of decency. They trust us to do what's right. And this is the State of the Union address made in January 1992. So when we talk about the end of history, that's probably one of the signature statements on what prompted that assessment. Now it's Clinton 
uh, Bill Clinton, who is really the personification of neoliberalism for Anderson and in an unbound, unfettered way, because Clinton oversaw the construction of a very transformative free trade zone in North America, as well as the uh, shock therapy that tore through Russia. So Anderson has an interesting explanation of the relationship between grand strategic orientation, um, the grand strategic orientation of the U.S. and economic policy, and he puts it like this. In the first decades of the Cold War, American policies had been permissive. Other industrial states could be allowed, even assisted in the face of communist danger, to develop as they judged best, without undue regard for liberal orthodoxy. From the 70s onward, American policies became defensive. U.S. interests had to be asserted against competitors within the OECD, if necessary, with brutal coup d'etat, but without undue intervention in the real economies themselves. By the 90s, Washington could move to offensive. The neoliberal turn had deregulated international financial markets, prizing open hitherto self-enclosed national economies, and the United States was strategically master of a unipolar world. For the first time, in other words, the U.S. didn't have a geopolitical constraint on insisting that economic practices of other countries fall in line with American standards. So this meant that social or national protections would have to be phased out, and um, this would be called the Washington Consensus. Because it had the global reserve currency and the deepest capital markets as well, uh, the U.S. was the controller, par none, of the system of financial turbulence that was now passing through the world. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Clinton's relationship with Yeltsin, who eventually became known as Americans' Council in Moscow. So we talked at the beginning uh, when I introduced this chapter about how the United States was handling its former allies um, in the Third World, who, uh, of course, did not represent the ideals of quote-unquote, justice and liberty of the liberal democratic system, so namely Saddam Hussein or Noriega, or if we go back in time to uh, one of our favorite discussions on Indonesia, you know, um, Suharto. Now, how did Clinton handle the transition from the Soviet Union to a capitalist Russia? And this is where you really have to understand Yeltsin, who was essentially a willing participant, a real uh, sucker for the transition to a selling off of all of the Soviet Union's assets, a cutting of prices, a cutting of subsidies, and a handing over of the country's principal assets for nominal sums to a handful of crooked oligarchs in formation. So Yeltsin had essentially an obsequious relationship to the U.S., um, and this is where he, uh, you know, he received that moniker uh, from Gorbachev as Americans' consul in, in Moscow. So the, the global integration of the United States' former civil, civilizational opponent was a major success for the United States. Uh, of course, this was a major, uh, a major hit to political consciousness with the death of communism ideology becoming essentially rampant through the political system among leftists, among, um, you know, the intellectual elite in this country. But it was a major success and, the uh, American military did not draw back from its initiatives as a result. In fact, contrary to some international relations theories, heavyweights like John Mearsheimer, NATO expanded. So um, just another quote to, to bring this out a bit from Anderson. 
For the Clinton regime, disappearance of the Soviet threat was thus no reason for withdrawal of forward U.S. positions in Europe. On the contrary, the weakness of Russia made it possible to extend them. Now, I'm not in a position to go through the history of the Bosnian and Kosovo wars, but I think the expansion of NATO is demonstrated in its full force, or at least its potential force, in the history that Anderson provides here. And just to give a basic sense of what's happening there is Bush the Elder's administration, to use a baseball term, I mean, he's just getting insurance runs. The Cold War comes to a close. Um, he's able to uh, prosecute the war in um, Iraq and basically put the the Bathist regime against the ropes. Um, but he's, I'm using too many sports analogies. But anyway, he, he gets, he lucks out again and Yugoslavia falls apart. So it was not part of the Soviet bloc, but kind of follows the same course. And Yugoslavia breaks apart into its contingent nations. So Bosnia, Croatia, Serbia, and those are the main ones that we'll talk about. But what happens is the European community tries to create a power sharing agreement between these, uh, you know, the major countries that made up Yugoslavia. And it was complete failure. And what happens is the United States intervenes. Really, it's the UN under you know, U.S. auspices that intervenes to put down um, a three-way civil war, you know, between Muslims, Croats, and, and Serbs. And it's shortly after as part of this unraveling of national attitudes throughout the uh, the Balkans that the United States intervenes into Kosovo, a similar situation where the Security Council is prompted to utilize force, um, the force of the UN, again, under U.S. auspices to prosecute these wars in, in the Balkans. And, and what this is, is the you know, an example of NATO's expansion, its power in the world, um, now being able to run roughshod without the, you know, the, the counteracting pressure of the Soviet Union. But it's also the United States demonstrating that it's not going to tolerate any security issues, any BS, and it has to create a credible threat. And I think the Balkans was the testing ground to say, hey, if things are shaken up and, and security looks like it's under threat throughout Europe, the United States will do what it wants to put that down. So this credible threat of a military hegemon is really put into play for the world to see. So going back to Iraq one more time now, in a related way, there's another innovation that Anderson mentions here under the Clinton administration. And it's, you know, we're talking about the innovation of using NATO and the U, uh, the expanded NATO and the UN to prosecute a war in the Balkans. But now we have the utilization of sanctions in, 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 in Iraq to really put the Ba'athist regime out of the picture. And it's, in this period in the 90s, uh, which is largely forgotten, I don't think we talk about this quite enough, but the United States uses sanctions against Iraq and it completely devastates the country. Uh, basically a setup gutting the country of its economic resources and a setup for the following years of the Bush administration, George W. Bush, to um, ransack the country in the Iraq war beginning in 2003. So those sanctions... I mean, I'm not even sure we know the exact figure of how many people died as a result, but I think it's on the order of a million or two million. It was, as Anderson says, an undeclared conventional war. So before I go into the last section of liberalism militant, let's just review the innovations of the Clinton regime. So walking backwards, we have the use of sanctions as conventional warfare. This is demonstrated in the sanctions against Iraq 
we have, as we spoke about in Bosnia and Kosovo, the invention of this idea of humanitarian intervention, using the Security Council as a subcontractor of military operations for the for for NATO. Okay, we talked about another innovation, which is the expansion itself of NATO, despite the fall of the Cold War and the end of this civilizational struggle that gave justification to a military ramp up throughout Western Europe up to the borders of the Soviet bloc. And then finally, the creation of um, essentially a chemically pure neoliberalism and the uses of such free trade agreements as NAFTA and GATT to create an unfettered global capitalist system. Now that brings us to the second Bush administration, George W., and it's kind of interesting when he entered office, he claimed he wanted a leaner military and 9-11 kind of put the kibosh on any such plans. Despite the relatively insignificant strategic risk posed by Al-Qaeda, the war on terrorism uh, would be fought at all ends of the earth. This became apocalyptic envision. It was another civilizational conflict this time, democracy and the, um, you know, Judeo-Christian civilization against Islam. And this apocalyptic commentary was reactive. It, 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 it had reactive convulsions to the uh, spectacular violence of 9-11 and attended the blind commentators to the long-term causes of such blowback. So Anderson isolates the three key sources of inflamed Arab hatred, and I think these are well known. One, it's the collusion with tyrants throughout the Middle East, and the United States had a track record of this in the Arab world as much as it did in Southeast Asia, in Latin America, and it wasn't exceptional for this reason. Mario took us through that history in his coverage of perimeters. All right, then you have the, the force of the Mujahideen, uh, the network created to wage war on the Soviet infidel which now turned its back against the U.S. And this history goes back to the, I believe Gopal had covered this in recalibrations, but it goes back to the final days of the Soviet Union when the PDPA in Afghanistan, a progressive party, was sponsored by the Soviets and the United States responded with what was, I think, the biggest covert operation in uh, CIA history, around $3 billion in arms and assistance, funneled to the Mujahideen, which we now know was um, a decision that came to bite the Americans in the ass. Now, finally, and most importantly, is the connection and relationship with Israel. And this is an interesting framing that Anderson gives, but he says that Israel is essentially a settler colony, and it's not um, an example of American colonialism, but it is a, you know, um, it's an ally that the United States supports intensively. And it was established in the Middle East um, as a promised land for the chosen people in the context of a hostile world surrounding it, of people of a different religious persuasion um, and, and what they perceive as um, wanting to wipe it off the face of the earth. So this alliance with Israel to Anderson is the lodestar of American Middle East policy, one that he considers deeply irrational, along with many other you know, international relations theorists. We've talked about Stephen Walton and Jonathan Mearsheimer, to mention them again. But it's also one that has instigated and aggravated 
what he says couldn't be more of a combustible combination, this alliance of the United States with Israel in the context of a region that was going through a decolonization process throughout the 20th century. And it's an exact, exactly at that moment that the United States begins to cohere its support and alliance with Israel. Now, Anderson goes on to talk about several other distinctive characteristics of American strategic policy towards the Middle East, the second of which is Iraq. It's just a question that wouldn't die, and at some point the um, Americans try to um, legislate it out of existence, rather legislate the leadership of Iraq out of existence with the Iraq Liberation Act of 1998, which stated, it should be the policy of the United States to support efforts to remove the regime headed by Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq. And um, Anderson notes that no such congressional or legislative process had existed the entire time of the Cold War. It's just kind of a crazy notion that you can legislate your enemies out of existence. And of course, what it was is the groundwork politically for the later war that would come in 2003. Now, I'm going to telescope the history a little bit here, but before the United States could rally support from the public, again, a public that had just elected a president that was saying, okay, we need to downgrade a bit on our military capacity or whatever he was saying, basically, you know, uh, scaling back of America's military presence. I mean, not significantly, but it was remarkable that Bush had even said this. But what had to happen for that public support uh, for an Iraq war to occur, of course, was the attacks of 9-11. And this brings us to the third distinctive characteristic that Anderson mentions, namely the support for various proxy groups to do its dirty work. The most meaningful or most significant proxy, you know, alliance that the United States had made and that's relevant to this section is the Mujahideen, which I mentioned previously. But what they were trying to do during the 1980s in forcing the Soviet Union out of its support for the PDPA and invasion of Afghanistan was uh, fire up a group with, quote, faith as hostile to the West as to the Soviet Union and attract volunteers from all over the Muslim world. Now we know the foundational, let's say, material support for what later became al-Qaeda, the ideology of which became the justification and motivation behind the attacks on 9-11. And there was, you know, it, there, there is uh, an interesting, Anderson does mention their first public manifestos, and, and he says, its leader explained his cause. The fate of Palestine held pride of place. The outrages of Israel in the region and of its protector, the United States, called the devout to action. To the shelling of Beirut should answer that of its perpetrators. Nor was this all. Since the Gulf War against Iraq, American troops were stationed in Saudi Arabia, violating the sanctity of the holy places. The prophet had expressly demanded jihad against any such intrusion. The faithful had triumphed over one superpower in Afghanistan. Their duty was now to expel the other and its offshoot by carrying the war to the enemy. Okay, so fast forward through 9-11 and we come to the war in Afghanistan. The response by the Bush administration against Afghanistan was swift and it came quickly. It was codenamed Operation Enduring Freedom and it married a revolution of military affairs in irresistible RMA as Anderson describes it, of drone warfare, essentially death from above, and it took out the Taliban in a matter of weeks. 
that's when the long occupation of the U.S. and its allies set in and continues to this day. So early successes against the Taliban were a boon to the patriotic support needed to close out the unfinished business with Iraq that we were talking about earlier. And this comes a few years after the initial invasion of Afghanistan. The invention of WMD served as a cause of warfare, and it provided a kind of urgency needed for national consensus, supported largely both by Democrats and Republicans with hardly any uh, variation to that univocal support. I remember demonstrating in Chicago in defense of Iraq. You know, these were the early years of anti-war activism where there was you know, masses of people on the street. And I remember thinking it completely absurd that Democrats were taking the stage, you know, to tens of thousands of applauding demonstrators in Union Park. In any case, the Ba'ath regime was destroyed. And the Americans did their old pal Saddam dirty. I remember he was executed. The social, political, and material effects in Iraq were astounding. The occupation precipitated a civil war, it pit religious and ethnic sects against one another, and the chaos became a justifying cause in itself for the occupation. Hundreds of thousands had died, in addition to that, millions were forced from their homes, which was um, perhaps the initial spark to the refugee crisis we continue to discuss to this day. Now, all the liberal hand-wringing aside, Iraq became what Anderson calls a Panama in the sands, which means it was erased from time completely disappeared. The war criminals were forgiven or forgotten, and they've been humanized, like Bush has, in Instagram posts of bathtub paintings, chatter at football games. You know, he's he's kind of this laughable, goofy guy now. And, you know, the one of the prominent supporters from the Democrats, Biden, has now been, of course, nominated again to the highest echelons of political power. And I'm recording this um, on the day where he is perhaps likely to see victory in the presidential election, as though his role in Iraq has completely been washed away and he's been forgiven for it. Interestingly, I, I don't think the word oil appears once in this account of the Iraq war beginning in 2003. And I'm noting that for two reasons. Okay, one, one of the more common anti-war critiques at the time among the liberal left milieu was, quote, no blood for oil and connected to that, bring home the troops. Now, I'm not going to get into the so-called social chauvinism of the grossly patriotic slogan there, but that first one, No Blood for Oil, really suggested something off in the anti-war program at the time. In other words, this wasn't a war for crude material gain in the short term, a war for oil. What adventurism in Iraq meant from the Cold War on through the vendetta against the entire Baathist party throughout the 90s and the early 2000s was this sideshow in a bigger picture of attaining global hegemony. It's also worth noting that each part of the story in this chapter, pointing towards a ramp-up of militarism and military expansion, it's going to continue into the next administration, and it occurs in the context of a declining economic situation for the U.S. So the broader theme here is that there seems to be emerging this picture of a contradiction between the military superiority of the U.S. and its economic decline.
Hey everybody, this is Mario. I'm going to be taking us through the last chapter of the Imperium section um, called The Incumbent, and it's about um, Barack Obama's presidency and the adaptations he made to the geopolitical situation he inherited from Bush the Younger. And I think it's important for a number of reasons. The first is the way that Perry Anderson deals with the continuities of American presidencies throughout this um, post-war um, history that he unfolds. Um, one of the things he's going to you know, really drive home is the way that the Obama administration in some minor ways innovates from the Bush era, some of the Bush era doctrines of the war on terror um, and in some sense finesses them, but in many important respects is the bearer of a of, of kind of core continuity with that. Another aspect that's um, continuous with some of the things we've talked about in um, the previous two chapters is Perry Anderson's really kind of sobering conclusions about the strength of American power despite minor setbacks. I think um, when we talked about the um, American loss in Vietnam or some of the recalibrations of Richard Nixon or some of the... Um, and as we'll talk about, you know, as we talked about in the um, previous section on failures in Iraq, so too in this chapter with failures in Afghanistan, Perry Anderson nevertheless thinks that for the most part, America's position, especially in the Middle East, is not has not really been been weakened, even though there have been setbacks. There's failure, as I'll we'll, as as we'll sort of divulge. There's been failure in um, a proxy war in Syria failure to reach the strategic goals set out by both Bush and the Obama presidencies in Afghanistan. And as we've experienced throughout the Trump presidency, an inability to um, pull out of that counterinsurgency kind of debacle and a kind of set of improvisations that the United States was able to undergo in order to come out on top, basically, after the Arab Spring in 2011, 2012, and a lot of the, the tumult that it caused and um, overthrow of authoritarian regimes um, throughout the Muslim world. So this chapter, I think, can be broken down in several sort of parts. One is a discussion of the course of the Afghanistan war. Another is um, the innovations of the Obama administration in the war on terror, which largely consist of a sort of continuous innovations in the revolution and military affairs sort of technologies that Tom talked about in the previous episode. Um, most important in that is the use of drone warfare and systems of mass aerial surveillance as a form of, as a sort of platform to assist um, not only in assassination programs for insurgents and terrorists, but also to support special forces in different theaters of operation. Another section is just the Middle East in general, a kind of survey of the changing um, fortunes of the United States of different operations throughout the Middle East, while also being able to keep a kind of hold over its strategic command in the area and its ability to continue to operate on a strategy of balancing in that area. Another um, important section is um, Obama's relationships with Russia, the and another one is an assessment of Obama's pivot towards Asia, and finally, the end of the chapter reflects on the Obama presidency's transformation of the power of the presidency, or probably more aptly put, Obama's unwillingness to diminish the 
presidential powers assembled during Bush the Younger's reign. He has some very sort of, I think, sobering and, you know, analytically sharp assessments of the Obama presidency that I think are incredibly important for people on the left to understand now that um, it seems that Biden is going to be the next president and he's going to make a whole lot of his appeal based on being a kind of bearer of that Obama legacy. And so if you're on the left, you need to be able to be sharp on what some of the deficiencies of the Obama presidency actually are, lest we be overcome in a wave of, you know, jubilant praise for, for Obama. Okay. So the first section I'm going to start with is the Obama administration's handling of the debacle of the war in Afghanistan that Obama inherits. Obama basically considered Afghanistan to be the good war, which is to say it's the war that um, the United States should have been focused on in the war on terror instead of getting distracted and bogged down in a kind of hubristic flight forward into trying to transform the entire Middle East into democracies and um, attack and overthrow Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Nevertheless, a conventional victory in Afghanistan proved to be very difficult because of its mountainous terrain and the ability of the Taliban leadership. Very early on after the attack by the U.S. under Bush the Younger, they were able to flee into the mountains, Tora Bora caves, and basically hide in Pakistan and form a kind of shadow um, council, a shadow, I think it was called the Ketashura, which is, was a kind of parallel government um, there and basically waited out until uh, around 2006 when they launched a insurgency against the Afghan government under Hamid Karzai that the United States um, had been working with for years. One of the things Perry Anderson explains is a reason for America's inability to hold down a stable state in Afghanistan is the fact that um, the only sort of unanimous, the only sectors that gave full support to the um, to the U.S. were minorities within Afghanistan, Tajik, Uzbek, Hazara um, minorities, while the Afghan resistance may mostly consist in the Pashtun um, majority. Perhaps one of the perhaps the starting point for a revisionist narrative of the Obama presidency's handling of the Afghan war can be found in the Washington Post's Afghanistan papers. These were based on transcripts of confidential interviews with U.S. officials and civilian and military commanders in Afghanistan. And they show that almost all of them privately acknowledged that the war was unwinnable, um, despite statements to the contrary to the public. And it was the Afghanistan war and the objectives that the United States set for itself in Afghanistan were especially unwinnable because of the way the U.S. defined victory in Afghanistan. The way they defined victory was based on um, the strength and stability of Afghan civil society, which I think as we've been discussing throughout this podcast, fits into the pattern of America defining foreign policy goals in very open-ended and amorphous terms, right? Either the spread of markets, the spread of freedom, the not simply in terms of the securing of American interests, and even if that is sort of explained in more realistic, realist terms, it itself is pretty open-ended and gets the United States sort of bogged down in making commitments it can't fulfill. The Afghanistan papers show that year after year, the U.S. failed to tell the public about the conduct of the war. 
It shows that there was no real strategic consensus on what stability really meant. Was it um, in terms of simply having a stable government leadership and having the ability to ensure that no other terrorist group would be able to launch an attack against the U.S.? Or was it this much more open-ended definition of having a thriving civil society in which, you know, women could walk down the street without being, you know, harassed? We often would, I remember in the, throughout the course of this, throughout the course of the Afghan war, one of the most common appeals liberals would make for why we need to stay there is in order to save women who are going to be bogged down by, you know, another really repressive um, patriarchal society. To which I would often respond to people that the if the United States really cared about women in Afghanistan, they would have let the Soviets stay there. The Afghanistan papers also revealed evidence of widespread deception and waste. The reason why the Afghan papers were published was because the Washington Post basically had to sue the Special in, um, Inspector General of Afghanistan Reconstruction in order to gain access to these interview transcripts of the, in, the agency's own investigation. Much of the fraud and deception occurs through this sort of managerial solutions that war planners use to assess their own progress and how they came to discuss this progress and sort of basically create a kind of statistical um, discourse about the course of progress in Afghanistan with the public and also how they lied to other agencies within different wings of the military. They elevated data points into statistical indices in order to avoid and postpone fundamental choices about what it would take to get out and what they, what sort of concessions the United States would have to make in terms of its own public image as it left Afghanistan. What we have instead, and this is something that you know I'll, I'll try to bring out with the my, in my discussion of the Obama administration's innovations or you could say adaptations to the war on terror have to do with the creation of a machine, a vast sort of infrastructure and machinery of drone warfare surveillance and administration that was meant to basically control and manage the instability in the country and in dealing with this um, Taliban insurgency that we still have today and seems to be basically the way that the United States is going to maintain its footprint in Afghanistan, even if that is going to require fewer and fewer soldiers there. Another, um, I think, glaring failure of the Obama administration was the way it responded to unrest in Libya during the Arab Spring. Um, in response to the Arab Spring moving um, through the Middle East and um, Muslim countries that were toppling or at least challenging the rule of autocratic rulers, the U.S. organized um, with European nations to launch missile and air attacks on Libya. It basically got um, approval from the U.N., and organized through NATO countries a no-fly zone. But from the basis of that, which, you know, of course, to enforce a no-fly zone does involve missile attacks and bombing often. But in this case, they transform that mandate into a, you know, um, wide, a um, extensive strategic bombing campaign in 
directed towards toppling the Qaddafi regime. And Perry Anderson is very right to point out that Obama pursued this without congressional authorization and therefore in violation of both the Constitution and the War Powers Act of 1973. He claimed that the assault in Libya didn't constitute hostilities because no American troops were involved on the ground. Um, he referred to it as kinetic military activity. Now, Anderson quotes a book by James Mann called The Obamians, which is a sort of um, history of the first term of Obama's presidency and the responses that the um, Obama's foreign policy team made to what they inherited from Bush. And, he's, and James Mann writes, those drone and air attacks gave rise to another bizarre rationale. Obama officials took the position that since there were no boots on the ground in Libya, the U.S. was not involved in the war. By that logic, a nuclear attack would not be a war. And what James Mann's referring to here is a, is a, a white Obama White House counsel overruling of the Office of Legal Counsel that objected to the use of the U.S. Air Force in, this, in these operations in Libya without congressional approval. The Libya operation was named Operation Odyssey Dawn and posed a humanitarian intervention under the banner of NATO. Um, it should be pointed out that the one country, the one major country in Europe that abstained was Germany. But one of the things that Perry Anderson also points out throughout this chapter is that um, through the Libya incursion, the Europeans sort of you know renewed their function within the you know hegemonic chain of nations to basically be a dutiful servants of the U.S. and that they were quite eager to participate in the bombing of Libya in order to in order to throw their weight around in the Mediterranean. Next comes um, Iran, and um, it should be pointed out that since this book is published in 2014, some of the things are, are dated, and it, it actually was published um, before the um, Iran nuclear deal. Um, but it does, ca but because so many liberals and leftists think of this at least as one of the, un the um, unassailable positives of Obama foreign policy, they tend to forget the things that led up to um, the um, Iranians coming to the negotiating table to make this agreement. And there is indeed a kind of tawdry and bloody tale to be told about um, the years that led up to that agreement. And um, Anderson does a good job of explaining that. Iran had basically um, gained from the invasions of both Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, it gained a country bordering it um, in Iraq that was um, majority Shia. It had become adept at using proxy militias um, to wage um, sectarian warfare throughout the course of the uprisings against um, against al-Qaeda in Iraq. And, 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 it's, and it's kind of, you know, for this reason that they sort of gained from the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan that they, in, you know, in, in any normal sense, colluded with the United States in the occupations of both countries. Despite the um, you know assistance that they offered the United States, they remained in the gun sites of the U.S. for never having made amends for you know attacking the U.S. embassy um, in Tehran, and of course the 
Iranians have a long history of calling the United States the great Satan. And the, those simple gestures they had made to the United States in the invasion of Iraq weren't sufficient to, to um, change the course of um, U.S.-Iranian relations. I think Iran's commitment to a nuclear program for you know, a civilian energy um, infrastructure based on nuclear power is sincere in terms of it being dedicated towards that purpose. And there's many reasons why they would want to have the, the energy independence and infrastructure to provide for themselves in the context of extensive American sanctions. But it is also the case that any country that has a system of nuclear power plants and a nuclear program can easily transition to having nuclear weapons. And so one of the, you know, I, I don't obviously don't know all of the details about this stuff. And maybe Tom and I will, in a later episode, be able to talk about nuclear proliferation in the system, the series of treaties that are basically expiring um, right now and in the next couple of years and throwing the world into a great amount of danger. But the, you know, the um, nature of agreements with between the U.S. and Iran basically revolved around how to guarantee inspections and how what kinds of levels of um, fissile material and type and what sort of um, concentration of uranium they would allow the Iranians to have in a civilian nuclear program. One of the glaring, you could say, contradictions in America's approach to nonproliferation is the fact that there is the NPT nonproliferation treaty designed to keep states from acquiring nukes, but. In except for yeah, of course, it, but it allows other states to have it. One of them being Israel, and I guess when the was the late nineties um, or mid nineties, both um, India and Pakistan acquired nuclear weapons. Um, one of the reasons why the U.S. is very adamant about not allowing any other country besides Israel to have nukes is one, it's a much more um, chaotic area of the world, so the chances of them being used increase. But also, um, any country not allied with the U.S. and Israel with nuclear weapons can counter Israel. And the Israelis are very adamant about not allowing Iran to have nuclear weapons or even for that matter to have underground, to have a nuclear program at all. And um, it was for this reason that the, um, you know, Israelis have um, blitzed and um, bombed underground installations in Syria, and we're indeed planning on doing the same in Iran. So before um, Obama began to engage with the Iranians on the possibility of coming to a nuclear a deal on nuclear um, on its nuclear program, the Israelis were engaged in assassination programs killing um, Iranian nuclear scientists. Um, they killed them in a series of motorcycle shootings, I think, and car bombings. And the U.S. and, Is and Israelis um, use cyber warfare to um, attack Iranian computer networks and cripple the development of its um, nuclear program with the Stuxnet virus. Um, and that was personally supervised by Obama. So when next time you hear about, you know, cyber warfare and uh, how, you know, America is a great threat from it all, just know that America is a great innovator in that in that um, department of um, war making. Now, since Anderson wrote this book, there has indeed been the nuclear deal with Iran, which I would argue was is a was basically a good thing for um, both countries. But um, as all listeners will also know, um, Trump um, tore that agreement up, and it seems now we're going to go 
and us, you know, further into a cycle of the Biden administration seeking to um, to uh, renew that agreement with the Iranians. It remains to be seen to what degree the Iranians think of the United States as good faith actors or to, to what degree they think that they are uh, agreement compliant. So moving from the relative success of Obama's agreement on a nuclear deal with Iran, move now to the course of Obama's strategy towards Syria. Syria was seen as a lever from which to hold down Iran. The Syrian Ba'ath regime never provoked the U.S. to the degree that um, the Saddam Hussein uh, regime in Iraq did, but its hostility to Israel and its traditional links to Russia, Iran, and Hezbollah made it an unwelcome presence in the region. Because of that strategic impasse, the Obama administration um, used the Arab Spring uprising as a perfect opportunity to um, use proxy forces to attempt to topple his regime. But this time, NATO and U.S. bombing was blocked by Russia and China at the U.N. Russia had audibly been angered by the way the U.S. manipulated the U.N. resolution during the Libya no-fly zone. And another reason that Anderson explains for why the U.S. was unsuccessful in toppling the Assad regime in Syria is that it had a much more broader base of support in that country than Gaddafi had in Libya. And that broader base of support, I suppose, is due to the fact that there is a multi-ethnic and multi-confessional um, support for the Assad Alawite-led regime, which at least, despite being authoritarian, incredibly corrupt, and... Um, doing everything it took, including, you know, torture and massacres in order to win the civil war, at least is willing to guarantee um, security for um, people of different faiths. Now, the U.S. would not, throughout the course of the Syrian civil war, the U.S. decided on a policy of not directly intervening or directly arming and training the Syrian rebels but it would instead rely on Saudi Arabia and Qatar to funnel weapons and money to them and Turkey and Jordan to host and organize them. You could say it, it, the U.S. Um, definitely sent lots of money and, and, and um, arms to Islamist fighters in Syria, but they did it mostly through the conduits of the Gulf states. You could say that the U.S. used Saudi Arabia and Qatar in a similar fashion to the way they used Pakistan um, in the um, Mujahideen insurgency against the Soviets in Afghanistan in the late 80s. So this strategy of using proxy warfare um, became a perfect recipe for sectarian warfare as Salafist jihadis became the best fighters um, against Assad. But the imminent question was rarely posed in public would a victorious Salafist regime turn against the West just like the Taliban? Sunni fundamentalism seemed ill-suited for Syrian society. Plus, Turkey and Jordan, and especially Turkey, which took an overseeing role in guiding the rebels against the Assad regime, seemed to be a staunchly capitalist pro-Western form of Islamism. 
So there was some reason, I think, for the Obama administration to think that these states, both, you know, perhaps maybe they were so um, naive to think Saudi Arabia could play such a role. But in the case of Turkey, maybe they, they could um, basically corral these proxy forces in a way that would make them more uh, similar to the type of Islamism that exists in Turkey and less less prone to the um, forms of communalist violence and Pers- and persecution that is associated with al-Qaeda and later ISIS. Ultimately, Syria managed to stay alive and defeat um, the um, proxy forces arrayed against it from many different countries. And this is due both to, or this is, and this is due not just to Alawite loyalties in the general multi-faith coalition that saw greater value in a society uh, ruled over by Assad, but also due to Russian support, the flow of weapons from Tehran, and um, flow of material and forces from Hezbollah in Lebanon. The Syria conflict kind of typifies our current age of proxy warfare, and I have um, many expectations of these sort of things continuing. Washington blob people tend to portray the growing prevalence of proxy warfare and aggression and conflict in the gray zone between war and peace as caused mostly by anti-systemic actors like Russia um, or Iran. But really, if you take a you know, longer-term historical view and even a, even a more detailed view of the contemporary period, you can see that the U.S. and its allies, especially in the Middle East, have really been responsible for the proliferation of proxy warfare. Um, recall in previous episodes of the podcast that we've discussed the use of proxy warfare by the U.S. during the Cold War, especially towards the end of the Cold War, um, as the U.S. sent proxy armies to stomp, on the, to stomp out the left in Central America and, of course, use the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, sending the Soviets packing with the help of billions of dollars and Stinger missiles. Now, of course, after the end of the Cold War and the, the you could say the end of a kind of um, rivalry pitch between two nuclear powers in which proxy warfare could be seen as a way of um, containing conflict without it leading to um, greater escalation between those powers. It didn't cease, that didn't cease at all. Um, In fact, after the end of the Cold War, it's in, by most counts, has increased. What happened in Syria over the course of the Obama administration is, of course, a monumental tragedy. And I think the repercussions of it have not really been um, come to terms with by most Americans or Europeans, although there are perhaps reasons to think that Europeans have at least are more cognizant of it because of the fact that they've taken in so many refugees. Despite the immense loss of life, probably 300 to 400,000 and the millions of displaced people, it's probably for the best that the Assad regime defeated the proxy fighters in the U.S., Saudi Arabia, and Turkey, and others. If Assad had been toppled, the aftermath would have been similar to Libya, but with much more carnage as warlords and rival factions supported by outside powers fought over the spoils of the country. And more weapons and sectarian passions could have easily fueled that war to be, that proxy war to be an unending one. I'll read this as a kind of conclusion of Anderson's um, assessment of the U.S. and the Middle East basically throughout the um, 
period of the war on terror. So from Bush the Younger to the end of the Obama administration. Um, Perry Anderson writes, What the diminution of these populated centers of historic Arab civilization means for the balance of power is a corresponding increase in the weight and influence of the oil-rich dynasties of the Arabian Peninsula that have always been the staunchest supporters of the American system in the Middle East. So, Anderson basically has a very pessimistic view of what the fruits of the Arab Spring um, have been and sees the United States as basically just as powerful in the region, even if its plans of spreading stability in the region have come to naught. Next, we have Perry Anderson's assessment of Obama, the Obama presidency's relationship with Russia. And of course, we point out, as I should point out again, that um, this is written or published in 2014. So some of the kind of spiral into, you know, Russophobia and increasing tensions with Russia since Trump came to office um, are not in any way within Perry Anderson's purview. He still writes about the Russians as still being very slow to learn about the way the United States operates. But I think I think from other things Perry Anderson has written since then, I can tell you that he um, doesn't have the same assessment of Russian uh, foreign service or their diplomatic corps' inability to adjust to America's constant pressure on the country. Despite the naivete and incompetence of Russian diplomacy from the 90s to, say, the early years of the um, Putin administration, they have learned to live in a world of American pressure against them. And the course of events in Ukraine in 2014, 2015, and um, subsequent events give every indication that Russia no longer takes the U.S. really at its word and acts accordingly. Nevertheless, um, this is still very damaging for Russia because um, they would like to grab they they gravitate more towards um, Western Europe, um, as indicated by the you know their ongoing attempts to secure the Nord Stream two pipeline with um, Germany. But it seems clear that a big aspect of America's continued pressure on Russia is ensuring that European countries. Um, follow America's lead and maintain its or renew their function in providing ideological cover of international unity to America's projects, which includes denigrating Russia's calls to have its sphere of influence recognized. Next comes um, Anderson's assessment of Obama's um, relations with um, Asia and specifically China. He argues that in the towards the end of the Obama administration, the attempt to draw up a trans-Pacific partnership, a free trade zone of East Asian countries, sought to prize open the Japanese economy and, and other East Asian countries. But really, the Japanese economy had been a protected sort of maze of informal barriers that had frustrated previous American attempts to you know, penetrate its markets in retail, finance, manufacture, and agriculture. In the Cold War, such a arrangement wouldn't have really been countenanced or wasn't countenanced because um, 
complete economic penetration of Japan wasn't really a first order goal because it was more important to have a Japan stable with national autonomy to serve as a basic stable foothold for American military in East Asia. Um, so Anderson argues that the willingness of the Abe government to accept a loss of its countries of Japan's um, historic privileges reflects um, Japanese um, business class's fear of um, China's rise. Japan feels, it's, feels it needs American insurance. The TPP represented a, you could say, the economic aspect of the pivot towards Asia. The pivot was recognized by Obama as in 2010, China became the world's biggest exporter. In 2012, China became um, the biggest manufacturing country. And you could say after 2008, it showed a even bigger willingness in the United States to spearhead a really energetic um, a, a kind of recovery from the 2008 financial crisis. Um, China's stimulus package was three times larger than um, the U.S. stimulus package, and the growth rates um, that the country experienced after the crash were four times as fast. So these were the kind of economic conditions that prompted the United States to... Um, and for the Obama administration to conceive of this pivot towards Asia. What's the military purpose of the pivot towards Asia? Um, it's to surround the People's Republic of China with the necklace of U.S. allies and military installations to maintain American naval predominance across the Pacific, including the East China Sea. Anderson describes this as an asymmetry of pretensions, the U.S. regarding as a natural claim to rule the seas 7,000 miles from its shores when it would never permit a fleet in its own waters. It is also part of maintaining a marine base in Australia, um, joint naval exercises with India. I think since then also there's been a large um, naval port built in Singapore to service American ships. Nevertheless, um, despite you know, this pivot towards Asia, the Obama presidency still kind of entertained the notion of making China a responsible stakeholder in a as a lower tier power in comparison to the United States, but still very well integrated into the international system. I think people in the Obama presidency realized that the that China's rise was inevitable, and so the best thing to do was to basically lock in China's status as you know, in, in quotes, this a responsible stakeholder in global governance, but also locked in as a second tier um, power. And on that basis, bring it into the, um, allow it to remain within the global capitalist system. Okay, next is Anderson's assessment of the Obama administration's transformation of the power of the presidency, how in response to the um, imperatives of the war on terror inherited, both in Iraq and Afghanistan and around the world, it both increased the powers of the presidency in terms of its war-making powers and also insulated itself from, more, from greater public scrutiny. And he has... A very, he has very um, pessimistic things to say about 
the course of the Obama presidency in this regard. And I think, as I said earlier, I think it's important for people on the left to be really clear on these aspects of the Obama presidency because the because Joe Biden, the president-elect, is going to make much of his appeal based on the Obama legacy. And if it's on, and if the Obama legacy is unquestioned, we can we can expect, I think, a intensification of some of the pathologies that were actually in the Obama administration's uh, conduct of the war on terror. Now, this is, of course, is not to force Obama to shoulder all of the blame for these things because it's you could say it's part of a longer continuity. Um, part of a general trend line that's intensified, that was intensified in the war on terror. Um, the National Security Council today consists of 200 people, and that's twice the size as it was under Nixon. The CI budget has increased tenfold since the days of Kennedy. And um, more than ever, the CIA remains a kind of private army at the disposal of the president. Obama really didn't do anything to um, change the basic institutional bureaucratic parameters in which executive orders in defiance of the law are regularly upheld by the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department. Um, and now this is to say that, you could say despite um, greater finesse and maybe a lighter touch of the Obama administration in its handling of these kind of matters, it didn't really do anything to change the way it operates as it did under the Bush administration and the administration in which memoranda on the legality of torture and extraordinary rendition and all these other sort of ghoulish machinations could still be um, utilized. And in, a, in, in no real respect did Obama hold those people accountable. So, of course, you know, anybody who understands what, you know, constitutional form is about would know that, you know, if you don't change the um, arrangements and hold people accountable, then it's always possible that some you know, crazy orange-haired bad guy might uh, come in and be the president next and abuse the very powers you were unwilling to um, diminish. And I think we're all just lucky that um, that orange-haired person was basically lazy and had no attention span. But um, in that, in this respect, Obama definitely failed. Obama inherited the system of arbitrary power and basically extended it. He used the power of the presidency to pursue Operation. Odyssey Dawn, um, which was the bombing of Libya, didn't and you know defied the objections of Congress members that he wasn't that he was breaking the War Powers Act. He engaged in stuck, Stuxnet cyber warfare um, activities. He expanded targeted killing. He allowed for the Prism program of mass surveillance of American citizens, and these all basically you could say set the tone of his presidency. And I think it's a real um, litmus test for how serious a leftist a person is, or, or really, to be honest, how principled a liberal someone is, if they're not willing to recognize how heinous these things under the Obama administration were, at least as precedent. And the reason why Obama didn't really change these things are best captured in this phrase by Perry Anderson. The logic of empire, not the unction of ruler, sets the moral standard. Perry Anderson ends um, this chapter with some reflections on the larger arc of American foreign policy and Obama's place in it. 
many art people conceived of Obama as a kind of reincarnation of Woodrow Wilson, at least in the use of his his rhetoric and foreign policy speeches. He very consciously tried to create that impression. Um, he relied very much on his speechwriter, Ben Ben Rhodes, as a kind of, you could say, a kind of sort of verbose phrase-mongering that would bring um, the sort of highest ideals of Wilsonian internationalist um, thinking with some of the hard realities of the risk transfer warfare, proxy warfare, and, um, you know, CIA-led um, assassination programs that I discussed earlier. So Perry Anderson writes that the original Wilsonian vision of a liberal capitalist order of free trade stretching across the world in which the U.S., by virtue of its um, economic power, would hold first place. The Cold War deflected that scheme because it forced the U.S. to confront in a kind of, you could say, realist way, the overriding priority of defeating communism. And it placed the constitution of you could say liberal multilateralism or um, liberal internationalism as a second order concern because the first thing, the first um, most important thing was the, you know, state to state or great power against great power competition with the Soviet Union. So it was a principally a military logic. Under those conditions, free market principles um, could be tempered by the need to secure victory um, over an enemy that's that threatened capitalism um, to court it the Soviet Union right was opposed to f- um, capitalism whether it was free trade or protectionist laissez-faire or dirigiste democratic or dictatorial or authoritarian forms of capitalism in the course of Cold War struggle the US um, amassed this huge military and political order um, that transformed, hemispheric hegemony into a global empire. After the end of the Cold War, this empire that the U.S. um, had maintained up until the end of the Cold War didn't dissolve back into the liberal framework of multilateral institutions. Instead, the U.S. has basically inherited it it and continues to push for global hegemony without the, you could say, same military exigencies or imperatives that um, were responsible for its creation. Anderson writes, The institutions and acquisitions, ideologies and reflexes bequeathed by the battle against communism now constituted a massive historical complex with its own dynamics, no longer needing to be driven by the threat from the USSR. Special forces in who knows how many countries, a military budget larger than all major powers combined, tentacular apparatuses of infiltration, espionage, and surveillance, and an intellectual establishment dedicated to revising and amplifying the tasks of grand strategy. As Anderson puts it, the Cold War was over, but a gendarme's day is never done. And yet, not everything is so honky-dory, because Anderson you know, has been building an argument since the chapter we've discussed, recalibrations, which deal with the Nixon administration and the beginning of the long downturn in the 70s, that basically beneath this militarist exaltation, um, there is an economic pressure beneath the empire's battlements that have been brewing for decades. The long downturn, the restoration of Germany and Japan 
to economic heavyweights um, was not a you know unalloyed benefit to the U.S. Um, after all. The Bretton Woods system had capsized under the pressure of competition um, during the Nixon administration, and their and Nixon's response to this um, was not only you know um, getting rid of the Bretton Woods system, but a kind of flight forward into a more radical free market approach, both at home and exported abroad. Um, that especially after the Cold War became what most leftists call neoliberalism or the Washington Consensus. Anderson argues that globalized deregulation sharpened its own problems for the U.S. economy, though. Its trade deficit and borrowing needed to cover over these problems. And the emergence of China as an economic powerhouse in its own right, uh, economic powerhouse of superior dynamism, whose financial reserves could be used to fund American public credit, has come to play um, an increasingly important role in global economy and in, you could say, the contours of the cold embrace of America and China today. And the, this, you could say this, you know, uh, put it this way, this epochal circumstance that we find ourselves in now is sort of dictated by this course of economic and geopolitical development I just described. But it throws into relief a kind of central issue that Perry Anderson has been talking about the nature of American um, geopolitical hegemony, which was about the U.S. being the sort of universal protector of capitalism throughout the world and being the sort of bearer of the costs of protection of the interests of the, of the capitalist system in general, even if throughout this you know, later period, capitalist competition is occurring to the detriment of many American capitalist firms themselves. There's a further complication of this um, dilemma with the emergence of the China rival or the rivalry with China. The logic of long-term American grand strategy has turned on itself, per, um, Anderson writes. Previously, the general interests of capital could be secured by the national supremacy of the United States. To solder the two into a single system, a global empire was built. While the empire has survived, it is becoming disarticulated from the order it sought to extend. American primacy is no longer the automatic capstone of the civilization of capitalism. The universal and the particular are coming apart, and the rivalry with China may bring this point to a theoretical denouement. I think this really raises the stakes um, for what not only the context of, not only the stakes of what our context is in terms of the degree to which economic rivalry and geopolitical rivalry are entirely intermeshed or whether or not they become um, unmoored from each other and security becomes um, paramount in the competition between two states that are nuclear powers again. So this leaves us with the question of whether the U.S. will be able to act as the um, purveyor of the general interests of the capitalist system when it's confronted with a regional power of superior economic dynamism and an attempting developmental path um, for the states that surround it. Um, I've just read um, the other day um, that 15 Asia-Pacific countries and members of ASEAN uh, you know, Treaty Organization are about to sign the world's largest free trade agreement, um, which will basically bring all of these um, East Asian countries, who's the for the majority of whom's trade is with the is with China, is going to 
exclude the U.S. and India and basically serve as a major gravitational force bringing those countries closer to China. We can expect that in a coming rivalry between the U.S. and China, that where the allure of American capitalist dynamism falls short, it'll likely rely on the ideological framing of itself as the protector of universal human rights. The real question is how seriously or to what degree the people and nations of East Asia will take the U.S. in this coming confrontation.